Matthew chapter 7, we begin at verse 1, reading verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5, Matthew chapter 7. Listen, this is God's word. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with a measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, this is the tenth and final installment of our sermon series on Bible verses often misunderstood and therefore misapplied. You keep using that verse, I do not think it means what you think it means. We have looked at, just by way of review here, we've looked at a few of uh, favorite verses for Christians and for churches like where two or three are gathered or go ye therefore or abstain from every appearance of evil. We looked at one that was a bit of a challenge for us in this culture and environment. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities. And then we looked at a couple of verses in two places, really, that uh, spoke of uh, parenting and, ch- and childbearing. Uh, in one where uh, Christians tend to think Christians, other Christians ought to have uh, many, many, many children. Low children are an heritage from the Lord. And then, of course, we looked at a verse about training children, train up a child in the way you should go. And then we looked at a few verses during the season used by politicians to especially curry favor with those who happen to believe that Old Testament promises made to Israel directly but selectively apply to these United States of America. Texts like, if my people who are called by my name, or for I know the plans I have for you, or where there is no vision, the people perish. In each of those uh, verses, in each of those sections of Scripture, we've noticed that there's a kind of dominant way of them being understood, which when we explored the text in their context, we came to see is not really what the Bible means. Most of these verses have taken on a life of their own. Some of them are uh, perpetuated in Uh, Bible versions that are very, very old, but they've been assumed and become part of the cultural conversation about all kinds of things, and you'll hear them uh, come up and uh, from time to time, and in almost every case, they're being misunderstood, misused, misapplied. And I want to say that universally, in my preparation for each sermon, I would read broadly and widely and, and, and come across a variety of authors who would say, if we are to create a list of all the misunderstood and misused or misapplied uh, verses in all the Bible, this one or this one or that one would be certainly on it. 
And again, if we were to consult everyone who writes about these kinds of things, any kind of biblical scholar, really, or cultural uh, scholar, uh, we would see this as well uh, near the top or maybe at the top of everyone's list of misunderstood, misapplied texts is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. You see, we live in a culture of uh, uh, that advocates tolerance and acceptance. And so the words Christian and judgmental are synonymous and interchangeable. Most of the world sees Christians as judgmental. But if you live in God's world and if you live as if God's word is the ultimate standard of righteousness... And if you dare say some conduct or behavior or speech is contrary to God's word and is therefore sin, you have probably faced this reaction. Someone would have said to you, you're being judgmental. And now let's admit this, everyone, and we should include ourselves in this, but everyone likes to believe their own personal conduct, their behavior is justified or justifiable. Who here likes to have someone come to them and say, brother, sister, friend, I think you're wrong. I think you've done something wrong. And so in our culture, and we again find ourselves drawn into this, uh, by nature as sinners, in our sin, we want our conduct to at least be tolerated. But then we often want it to be accepted and then approved and then celebrated. And the first person who stands up and says, uh, no, wait a minute, that's not right. That person will hear the words didn't Jesus say, doesn't your Bible say, judge not? And this itself, this expression, even if it's not a direct quotation from Matthew 7, 1, this will take several forms. In its most mild form, it might be, let's just agree to disagree. But it can escalate quickly to, who are you to judge? You're not perfect. Or it comes in the form of whataboutism. Everyone sins. Who are you to say my sin is worse than anyone else's? But let's face it, most often this verse comes back to us in the simplest form of all. You can't judge me. And when that is appended by Jesus said, you can't judge me, it is, as one author has put it, the ultimate mic drop. Conversation's over. I'm in the clear, and I walk away, and you're left standing there. Well, I guess that is what Jesus said. 
And then, of course, you start to think for a moment, and you, go, you realize that this verse itself gets used to judge others for judging them. And once again, we come back to this to say, here's a verse that gets ripped out of context. And this verse, I don't think this verse means what you think it means. The word judge here can take on several different meanings. It can mean simply to discern or to evaluate, to weigh. There's even in the next couple of verses, there's a form of measuring. You used to think about the scales of justice not far uh, in the background for us. This word judge, of course, often has a judicial component to it. It tends toward a determination of guilt or possibly innocence. But here's where it starts to stray for most of us. It's a determination. It becomes a kind of prediction of one's ultimate position before the Lord and one's ultimate disposition by the Lord or at the hands of the Lord. And we immediately recognize there are people who, by virtue of their occupation or calling, are in a position where they are called to judge. We expect those in lawful authority over us, magistrates and judges, sessions, parents. We expect lawfully placed authorities to examine evidence, to interpret the law, to apply it to a particular case to render a decision, a judgment, a verdict. But let me take you to just two other places in Scripture to remind you that the call to discern or to judge properly belongs to each one of you. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, 2, in that famous text where he goes against that kind of anti-intellectualism of the age, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 5.14 tells us the ability to discern is actually a mark of mature Christians. This is a verse we don't probably consider enough, at least I don't. Solid food, he says, is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. Remember, that was the challenge in the garden. And it's still the challenge for us today. So Jesus clearly, back to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus clearly is not saying we are never to discern or to evaluate or to weigh or to even render judgments. We do this all the time. And we are called to do it. But let's do see what he does mean. And again, the context will help. We should notice this is in Uh, the Gospel of Matthew in what we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember Jesus is mirroring or echoing what Moses did uh, when he had the people gathered around Mount Sinai, when God called him up and gave him the law of the Lord. And just as Moses in the Old Testament is gathering a nation around him and giving them the law of God that are to follow so their lives can be shaped and defined as those who belong to God, 
the God who has saved them. So now Jesus begins his ministry by calling to himself and by creating in these new beginnings a new community that will become the nucleus of a new people of God, the church. And so you start to see through this, what do disciples of Jesus Christ look like? What should characterize or mark the life in the church? And here's the central point, I think, in this section. Disciples of Jesus Christ show grace and mercy to others in their sin because they themselves enjoy the grace and mercy God has shown to them in Jesus Christ. Jesus gives a reason not to judge others, or he tells us how we are to expect uh, what will happen to us in our judging of others. And he lets us know, we're to understand that if we judge others by our standard, we should expect that standard to be applied to us. This is something you see all the time uh, if you spend any bit of time on the internet. People who have standards of judgment for what other people, what they believe sin to be, and then are discovered to have others come after them when they do something like it. But Jesus is directly challenging us to say, if we want to stand in judgment, if we want to stand in judgment of someone, we should be prepared to be judged or evaluated by the same standard. And more than anything, he'll be saying here that we should never assume or announce that someone is irretrievably lost. We're not in a position to be able to judge to the point of saying, placing ourselves, in other words, in God's position of saying, this person can never, ever be reached by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's not to say we would never imagine that we could never, or that we could never say anything about anyone's sin. That's not the point, but to announce that someone is irretrievable. And then we have this illustration Jesus gives uh, that helps uh, to give some sense of what he's really meaning. And in the illustration, Jesus sp speaks about the eye, and uh, here he uses the word from which we get, the word ophthalmologists, a doctor who specializes in that branch of medicine with the anatomy, physiology, pathology, functions, diseases of the eye. And Jesus is warning against what I'm wanting to call an enthusiastic spiritual ophthalmology, or what I like to call the eager Christian ophthalmologist, that self-appointed spiritual eye doctor who does nothing about the fact that he has a rather large log protruding from his eye, but who is eager and anxious to address the small specks of sawdust in the eyes of everyone else. A person who has a significant sin in her own life, she doesn't see or chooses to ignore, looks past even though it seems like it would be impossible to look past it because she's preoccupied with fixated or fixated on pointing out the little sins of others. Notice Jesus is making a point that there is some sense of degree of sin. And these two verses function like a kind of mirror to us. We're to look into them. We're to see ourselves because 
we can tend easily to be eager ophthalmologists. And if it's not, if we are not, it's really because of God's grace in our lives where we start to understand and embrace what God has done for us and how difficult it is even by the Spirit's power to fight against the kinds of desires or impulses that are producing that sin in the others. Notice a few of the contrasts in the parable. The first is really between that log and the speck. It's rather humorous. It's intended to be a ridiculous comparison, one that makes us smile, but it's why this illustration is so memorable. This guy over here has a tree trunk sticking out of his eye. In fact, you might wonder how he can even get close enough to the other person to see the speck in that person's eye. And I don't think Jesus is intending that we should think of the tree trunk or the log and the speck as being made of the same wood. In other words, I don't think he's saying that the sins of the man with the log are of the same nature as the sin of the man with the speck. The emphasis isn't on the quantity or the size as much as it is on the, rather the emphasis is, I should say, on the quantity, the size, rather than on the kinds of sin. Again, this person uh, who has the log is wanting to see and to address the little speck of sawdust. And notice Jesus is speaking to the person who has the bigger sin. He's speaking to that person rather than the person who the one with the bigger sin seeks or claims he wants to help. There's another contrast, and that's in the verbs, the person sees the speck in his brother's eyes but does not notice the log sticking out of his own. It's intended, again, to grab our attention. There's this guy with a log sticking out of his eye. He's really not able to see well at all, and you'd think the first thing he would see that he would be concerned about would be that log, and no, he doesn't seem to notice it. Instead, he sees. He's motivated by that small speck of dust in the eye of someone else. The eager ophthalmologist sees the small, barely noticeable sins of others, does not notice that prominent sin in his own life. And so this is where Jesus begins to drive home the point of the parable, which is itself an elaboration of judge not that you be not judged. See, the person with the log in his eyes, eager to point out that small sin he notices when he's unwilling to remove the large sin that really is blocking his view. And he has this feigned sincerity or concern about the person with that small sin. And we're to imagine a person here concerned, trying to be helpful with a kind of eagerness and enthusiasm. Here, let me get this little speck out of your eye and all the while completely oblivious to this problematic large log. And here's the point Jesus is trying to make. The person, that eager ophthalmologist, the person with that large sin, is always, it seems, eager when it comes to others to address sin, unwilling when it comes to himself. There's a kind of deep double standard There's a willingness to judge, but not to be judged. 
There's a willingness to apply a standard, a measure of judgment without any willingness to have that standard applied to himself. And again, this invites us to think about some ways this illustration itself is misused or misapplied. Again, notice the speech is, uh, this is not a speech rather given by the person with the speck in his eye. That is, uh, sometimes someone might come to you. Someone might come to you with a log in their eye to point out the speck in yours. And you might want to say, and you'd be justified in saying, hey, hypocrite, take care of your own sin before you come on to me. When someone comes to you with sin in their lives and they want to confront you in yours, hear them. See if there isn't something right or true about what they are saying. You've, after all, there is a speck in your eye. And perhaps look for another opportunity when you can go to them and point out that rather large log. But notice Jesus is also uh, not addressing the man with the speck and offering him the opportunity to say, but look at everyone else around me. Everyone has at least specks in their eyes. Some of them have uh, small pieces of wood. Others have a twig or a branch. And then, of course, there's that guy over there. Jesus is not saying to any of us that small pieces of sawdust are okay. That small sins should go unaddressed. In fact, notice Jesus says to the guy with the log in his eye, first remove the log in your eye, and then you will be able to see clearly the speck in your brother's eye. And again, that brings us back to the main point of this illustration. Jesus is speaking directly to one uh, with significant sin who is eager to point out smaller sins in others and he's getting to the heart of the significant problem in which we all share we have a much easier time identifying sins in other people than we do in ourselves. That's really at the heart of this uh, challenge here. We have, for most of us, have a much easier time seeing, identifying sins in others than we do in ourselves. Or to turn that around just a little bit, we're usually easier on ourselves than we are on others. Our standard, our benchmark for defining sin is much higher with others than it is with ourselves. We sometimes set it in such a way that no one will ever clear it, and for ourselves we will always clear it with room to spare. We can more easily defend or rationalize or explain our own sin than we are willing to allow someone else to describe theirs. Or we judge or find lacking people's qualities and their characters. We overlook the good to see only the bad. We judge words and actions. We put the most uncharitable spin on what they say or do. And sometimes in our evaluations of them, we hear and see only those parts we want to. We fill in the gaps with our own assumptions and we even go as far as to imagine we know what motivates them. 
And so we end up creating a scenario where the other person is cast in the most unfavorable light. And we might assume the other person is proud or selfish or lazy or stubborn or controlling. Or the reason they do what they do is only and primarily uh, to get under our skin, to aggravate us. Why do we do this? What makes us become these kinds of eager spiritual ophthalmologists? Well, sometimes it's simply self-righteous pride, isn't it? Look at how much I know or look at how good I am or how much I have it all together. My self-evaluation of spiritual success entitles me to become the self-appointed spiritual policeman and then prosecutor and then judge and jailer. Sometimes Christians do this out of a deep sense of insecurity. You see, we're aware, generally, of our rather large sin, even if others don't know of it or see of it. We're aware of it, and it makes us a bit uncomfortable. Uh, But we're even more uncomfortable around people who have only small apparent sins. And so we choose to fixate, consciously or unconsciously, on their sin because it makes us feel better. You see, if I bring you down a peg or two, I am at the same time pulling myself up just a little bit. And sometimes Christians do this out of a a real twisted desire to humiliate or to shame. And the problem is, as Jesus is wanting to point out here, is that when we evaluate or when we judge others, we tend to do so without first or without adequately addressing our own faults. We launch into this critical evaluation of others based on what we believe to be their faults. And you can see, again, we've placed ourselves in the position of God. The good news here is there's a cure for eager ophthalmologists. And that is to see ourselves as Jesus sees us, that we are great sinners. We're born with a whole forest of logs sticking out of both eyes. But we are forgiven by God's grace because he sent his son into the world to take on our sin. He sent his son into this world to bear on the cross in his body God's judgment, God's justice for sin, for the sins of judging others unjustly. And Jesus goes to the cross and he goes as the one who has the clearest vision of all, and yet who is seen by the Father in our place for our sakes as the one who bears all of the forests of all of the worlds, of all of God's people. And so he goes to death for us. And he goes, as we've read already, as the one who entrusted himself 
to the one who judges justly. That is, in this greatest moment of injustice from one perspective, that the one who's perfectly sinless should bear the weight of God's wrath and judgment, that one in that moment is entrusting himself to his Father in heaven to say, you know how this should go. He entrusts himself to the one who judges justly, and he's raised from the dead for our justification. And that means, as disciples of Jesus Christ, you ought to embrace the grace of God in Christ. And you then are to be merciful as God was merciful to you, as you wish others would do to you, so do to them. And just here's some very simple, practical ways you can put this uh, into uh, work in your life. You should be able then to speak tentatively rather than conclusively about those about whom you have questions. You can learn the art of hesitation, self-examination, being uh, quick to listen, slow to speak. Learn the art of self-examination before going on a sin hunt in others. Take out that log that you might see clearly. Experience the grace of God enabling you to put significant sin to death so that you can speak graciously into the lives of someone who is near and dear to you who has sin in their lives to deal with. And trust me, we all do, don't we? This is Jesus telling us how to live as those who follow him. We're to walk through our lives and we interact and intersect with others. We are called constantly to evaluate, to interpret, to weigh what we see and hear. God expects us. In fact, God grows us to the point where we're able to form and develop opinions, to sift through the characteristics and the qualities and the speech and the actions of others. But he never places us on his ultimate throne where we ultimately get to say of this person or that person, they are irretrievably lost. We are called to react and to respond to situations with wisdom shaped and influenced by our assessment, shaped and guided by Scripture as the Spirit of Christ works that in our hearts. And as we evaluate and assess how things are compared to how they are to be or yet will be when Christ returns. And we're to adopt, as the Apostle Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. One of the things this whole series has brought home to me is that there have been ways and seasons and times and some of these long times in my life where I have misread and misunderstood a scripture passage. One of the great things about being a Christian is we get to admit that we were wrong. We get to admit, I have room to grow. I thought I knew this, but I don't think I knew it as well as I thought I did. Or that verse really does not mean what I thought it meant. And here's a perfect example of how we can walk through life 
making judgments and assessments and evaluations of what we see. We can guide the lost to Jesus Christ. We can do it in a way, there will always, of course, be people who will imagine that anytime we say anything, that uh, pointing out any sin, something contrary to God's word, that we're being judgmental. But surely we can do this in a way where people will say, here's someone who knows what sin is, who knows himself or herself to be a sinner, but who's experienced the grace and the forgiveness and cleansing of God and who out of love is coming to me, wanting me to see something that I'm just not seeing myself. That they and we might rejoice at God's great lavish forgiveness accomplished in Jesus. And that together we might walk with increased fidelity and faithfulness as disciples bringing honor to the one who came, who gave himself for us, who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and who is coming back. Only then will God's perfect judgment and justice be made manifest. Until then, we're to invite people to come to know him, to have their sins dealt with in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this season of our lives in this season of the year. Thank you, Lord, for uh, equipping us and teaching us, for reminding us and shaping us, for correcting us even. And we are grateful for your word. And by your spirit, we're grateful that you renew us. Receive our thanks. Feed us and nourish us, we ask. In Jesus' name and all God's people, say together, amen.